Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we're in uh, beginning a new study. We're in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Daniel, it's right after the book of Ezekiel. Uh, if you're looking for Daniel, you know, if you get to like Isaiah, it's a pretty big book in the Bible. Just keep going to the right. You'll go through Jeremiah. It's another big book. And then you hit Ezekiel. Daniel's the next one. So you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Now the book of Daniel... Um, has had a lot of criticism and has been rejected by critics of the Bible. And uh, probably more than any other book other than the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is uh, the exception to that because Genesis is the most criticized, most rejected book by critics. Why? Well, because it describes the origins of just about everything. It describes the origin of everything that basically exists um, it describes the origin of the universe. It describes the origin uh, of the earth itself, this world that you and I live in, of the animal species, of mankind. Uh, the origin of marriage is described there in the book of Genesis, as is the origin of sin. And, and so, uh, you know, each of those things has a profound impact or has profound impl implications, I should say, for you and I. And so there are a lot of people that reject that. But they're like, no, that, that can't be how it happened. This, you know, and so and they want to reframe, you know, marriages, for example. And so, you know, you can't Genesis just doesn't fit into so many people's uh, beliefs and stuff. And so Genesis has been attacked. Uh, you know, the enemy, uh, if the enemy can attack the book of origins, he can basically undermine the foundation of our culture and he has been doing that, and he's been doing a very good job of that, attacking the foundation. Well, the book of Daniel has also been criticized and rejected by critics. Why? Because of its remarkably fulfilled prophecies. Uh, a lot of people look at that and they go, well, how could someone you know, describe, accurately predict future events before their time? And so one of their critiques, critiques is, it has to have written, written by someone other than Daniel. There's no way Daniel could have written that hundreds of years before and to see it fulfilled so accurately. It had to have been someone after the fact pretending to be Daniel, writing the book of Daniel. Um, there's a lot of a lot, we could get into a lot of apologetics about it, trying to decide about that, uh, trying to figure out. For me personally, uh, Jesus basically settles it for me. Because in the New Testament, in Matthew 24 and both in Mark, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Jesus refers to prophecies of Daniel and he ascribes them to the prophet Daniel. Daniel himself says that he wrote the book of Daniel. So, you know, I don't have any problems with it at all. Um, why is the book of Daniel pertinent to our day and age? Why would people be, uh, you know, want to critique Daniel? Well, not only did Daniel record the history of the Babylonian captivity of the Jews, but Daniel wrote prophecy, like I said, um, accurately. About half of the book of Daniel is prophecy. And understanding Daniel's prophecies helps you and I to unlock the mysteries of the book of Revelation. They're really, they're really tied in together. Uh, chronologically, 
and we'll be getting into this in a, in a couple weeks, but chronologically, where are we today in history? Uh, we are somewhere between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. That's where we are existing right now today. And so the book of Daniel has some very, very it has implications for us today. It's very applicable. And it's important for you and I to understand God's prophetic plan for mankind because then it prepares us for how to live in this day and age as well. So Daniel, we'll start with verse 1 of Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought uh, the articles into the treasure house of his God. So we have this person here, the King Jehoiakim. He's one of the kings of Judah. Why did God uh, give Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon? After all, God had blessed Israel. It was his chosen nation. He had, he had said you know, they would be a lender nation to other nations. Uh, one of them would be able to chase away ten of them. Ten of them would be able to chase away a thousand. You know, God was going to bless the nation of Israel as he created it. And, uh, but now we see that God gave King Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Why? Well, the reason was, was because of the sin of Jehoiakim and the sins of the kings of Judah before him, his predecessors, and for the sin of the people. And it's not like God had just said, okay, you've blown it, you're out of here. He had warned them generation after generation after generation, warned them, sending them prophets, and saying, you know, you repent, turn from your sin. I want to bless you, but I can't bless you if you're in sin. You know, God says that to us today. We really want God's blessings in our life. But God can't bless us if we're living in sin. We have to deal with the sin issue if you want God's blessing on your life. And so Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, Jehoiakim, he didn't repent. He didn't turn. The people didn't turn, even though they had been warned repeatedly. So God raised up a foreign army, the Babylonians in particular here, and King Nebuchadnezzar, and gave him authority to take his people, the nation of Judah, into captivity. Well, when did that occur? The time was approximately, and I've seen two different dates, so um, 605 to 607 B.C., before the birth of Christ, 605 to 607 years before the birth of Christ. And there were actually three invasions of Judah by the Babylonians. This one that we're reading about this morning was the first of three uh, invasions. And in this first invasion, Nebuchadnezzar took the nobles and the descendants of the king, basically the upper crust. He basically took them. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar took some of the articles of the house of God, but apparently he didn't take them all because each time in each successive invasion, he took more to where finally the last invasion, he basically destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and ran, completely took everything and pretty much all the people, minus a, uh, you know the very weak, the very poor, and the very old he left in the land. But he took everything else. Um, why did he originally only take uh, some people? And why did he originally only take some of the articles of the house of God? Uh, Presumably, the Bible doesn't really tell us, but presumably 
He kept the temple functioning. And basically, it seems like Nebuchadnezzar didn't really want to just completely take them all into captivity at once. He wanted to create a vassal state, you know, a state that would pay tribute to him. You know, he would control it, but they would, like, pay in taxes, basically. They would, you know, uh, they would basically be subservient to him. Uh, But with each invasion, he took more, as I mentioned earlier. So among those nobles and among those... uh, uh, the the predis- or the uh, the descendants of the king, Daniel, the book who's the author of this book, Daniel and his companions were among those first exiles taken to Babylon. Daniel would have been uh, probably not more than eighteen years old when this took place, and so as a young man, you can imagine here he's taken from his home, from everything that he's known for the last eighteen years. And he's marched as a slave 800 miles, basically, to Babylon, uh, to a strange land. Uh, basically, in that, in that day and age, that was the capital of idolatry in the ancient world. And so here's this Jewish boy who's been raised, you know, in, in, in Judaism. And, and uh, you know, he's just known life probably in Jerusalem. And here he's gone off, hauled off with a bunch of other people to this strange land. Now... Years earlier, before this even took place, there was a king before Jehoiakim. His name was Josiah. And uh, he actually became king when I believe he was about eight years old. And they made him king of Judah. And uh, that king, uh, by the time that Josiah was a king, uh, the nation had pretty much abandoned the worship of God, for the most part, at least the kings had. And uh, his father was a very wicked king. There there was a lot of wickedness uh, in the land of Judah. And uh, basically, the temple had been in disuse. People didn't really go to the temple in those days. Uh, The word of God was not read in those days. And, uh, And so... Josiah, it, just, it was just on his heart to rebuild the temple or, or to, to repair it, basically not to rebuild it, but to repair it. And so he had some craftsmen and some workmen go in and start working in the temple. And, uh, you know, at that time, it's kind of like Europe today. You know, Europe today, a lot, a lot of the great revivals in the past centuries have happened in Europe. You know, the Welsh revival, the different revivals that have occurred in Europe. And there have been some great large churches that uh, were just thriving centuries before. But if you go to Europe today, those are, you know, they're museums. Uh, They're, uh, you know, attractions to come and see. Uh, You know, they've been converted to different, you know, establishments and stuff. All these great churches where all this great revivals had taken place centuries earlier. But the worship of God, basically, you know, people didn't stop going to church. And uh, why? Well, part of the reason was because the churches stopped teaching the Word of God, basically. And so, you know, they got, they got old. They got, they got uh, you know, they were no, no longer relevant to people. And so people stopped going and worshiping. And so these, these magnificent churches came into basically disuse. And now they're museums, like I said, and anything but houses of worship. Um, and, you know... To be honest with you, churches in the U.S. are are going that same direction. They're following the same pattern as churches in Europe. And really, unless there's a revival, like there's a revival in in Josiah's day, 
you know, given another, maybe another decade or two decades, many of these great big churches here in America, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be on the market for sale because there's not going to be enough people to, to maintain them. And, and, and pretty soon they'll be, you know, museums and they'll be places of, you know, different businesses and stuff. How does a revival come about? I think it's the same way that it came about in Josiah's day through discovering or rediscovering the word of God. Because that's exactly what happened in Josiah's time. You know, he sent all these workmen to go in and rebuild the temple. And as these guys were building, they came across these ancient scrolls, the dusty, you know, and they'd just been laying there, maybe laying in a corner. And they go, oh, this is kind of interesting. And they pull it open and they open it. And here's the word of God to the people of Israel. And they hadn't read it. Some of those people have probably never read it in their lifetime. And so they took it and they brought it to King Josiah. And they said, King, I think you need to see this. And then he opened up the scroll, and Josiah, it just, it just hit him like a ton of bricks. It basically, he, just, he, he repented of himself, and he realized, man, we have been in sin. We've been, we've been neglecting God. And at that point, there was a great revival in the land that, that Josiah led. And it was through rediscovering God's Word, through reading it, and not only reading it, but obeying it, responding in obedience. You want a revival, that's where it comes. That's the Word of God, basically. Reading it and doing what it says. Well, Josiah read the Word of God and it convicted him and he responded to obedience to God's Word and he led the nation in a revival. And there had been a, probably about a 57-year trend toward heathenism before him. Uh, his grandfather Manasseh, very, very wicked king. Uh, and his father, Ammon, both wicked kings. Um, they had led the nation further and further and further towards idolatry. And then Josiah became a king. There was this revival that occurred, and, and he was really leading the nation in, in revival. Well, Daniel was a child at the time of this national revival. Everybody loved King Josiah. He was a good king. He was a righteous king. He led the nation back towards God. In fact, he led one of the largest, uh, 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 I'm blanking on the service, one of the, one of the largest serfs, uh, one of the festivals. Anyways, I've, I, whatever. <laughs> but he was a great king, and, uh, and he led the nation into, into uh, a revival. And, you know, unfortunately... The revival, the, the effect of Josiah's devotion, because he was truly devoted to the Lord, sadly, it had little effect on his own sons. And uh, they basically, his sons were Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, and also his grandson, Jehoiachin. Each one of these guys that I just mentioned, they became king for a short time when Josiah died, because Josiah died in a battle. And uh, the whole nation mourned. One of his sons became king, and his, son, his sons were wicked kings. They went back; they reverted back towards the idolatry, and uh, and so it was sad to see that that the king who gave his heart back to the Lord, his own children didn't. However, there was a remnant of young men in Jerusalem at this time who were devoted to the Lord, who were who were serious about the relationship with God. Daniel and his companions were some of them, were among them. And so verse 3, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, 
to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, the young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans." And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Why did Nebuchadnezzar do this? I mean, why did he treat these young men so well and and feed them and and provide education for them and, and really take care of them? We're really not told why. But if you think about it, being nobles' sons, being noble, you know, noble descent, uh, they were well-bred, Daniel and his companions. Uh, they were probably already pretty well-educated, at least in, in J- Jerusalem. And uh, it could be that Nebuchadnezzar basically wanted to increase his kingdom's pool of knowledge and wisdom, you know, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, I remember back in the day, uh, one of the things that people criticized President Reagan for, he kind of dates myself there, but they, they criticized him because he just surrounded himself with a bunch of experts and he would refer to experts. And that's that whole thing with the Sandinistas was because he referred to some guys that told him, hey, you just deal with it this way. And, and uh, he basically like, whatever, you guys are the experts, you know, figure it out. Um, and... Uh, but, you know, it was a good presidency, and he had all these experts around him. And, uh, you know, I've been doing some stuff on my house, and I've been asking people that know what they're doing, hey, what do you think about that? What do you think about this? You know, it's good to get knowledgeable people around you that help you with what you're trying to do. And so it could be that this is what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do. He wanted to surround himself with more experts in different sciences and disciplines. And, of course, the, the Jews would have had different sciences and disciplines than the Babylonians. And so just maybe increasing that pool of, uh, of knowledge and wisdom. Um, and I mentioned that Daniel and his companions were of nobility. Actually, it mentions it right here in this passage of Scripture, which means that they were of the bloodline of the kings of Judah. Now, years earlier, going back even before Josiah, Josiah's great-grandfather was Hezekiah. Hezekiah was also a very good king, led the nation in, 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 in revivals and stuff, and, and uh, he was loved by the people. And towards the end of Hezekiah's life, God told him that he was going to take his life. He basically said, you know, make, get your affairs in order because you're going to die. And Hezekiah went, whoa, you know, he freaked out. And uh, he cried like a baby, basically. And he begged the Lord, you know, give me, spare my life, give me more years. And, and so God said, okay. I'll give you, I think it was 12 more years. So he gave him, he gave him some more years to live. And uh, during that time, that's when Manasseh was born. Manasseh, who was one of the most wicked kings of Judah. But anyways, God spared Hezekiah's life from a deathly illness. And the Bible tells us that the Babylonians sent a delegation of people from Babylon to basically wish him well. It was like they sent him a get well card, basically, in, those, in, that, in that day and age, basically. And uh, for some reason, the Bible doesn't really tell us, but for it could have been pride or maybe lack of discernment or probably both, Hezekiah showed the Babylonians all the wealth of the house of God. You know, come in and check out my treasury. You know, and he showed them everything, and they're like, ooh, yeah, that looks nice, you know. That was centuries ago, or generations before. 
And uh, God sent Isaiah, the prophet, to Hezekiah. And uh, Isaiah basically said, hey, w- what were these guys here for? And Jeremiah's, or Hezekiah said, hey, they were here to wish me well. And he goes, well, okay, what happened? He goes, well, I showed them everything in the house of God. And so Isaiah said this. Verse, it's in Isaiah 39, verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So it's quite possible, in fact probable, that Daniel and his companions were made eunuchs in the land of Babylon. Verse 6. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now the king's purpose in changing their diet, giving them new food, was was basically to get them to adapt to the Babylonian lifestyle. And eating the king's food for for the Jewish young men there, it would have violated the Levitical dietary laws. Not to mention that probably any of the food that the Babylonians ate was already offered to their gods. It was offered to idols. So it would have been an abomination for a Jewish person. It wasn't kosher to eat the food of the Babylonians. But the king, you know, wanted to get them to adapt to Babylonian life, the Babylonian lifestyle. Then as if that were not enough, just, you know, trying to change their diet, he had the, the king had the, the chief of the eunuchs change their names. And what's interesting about the names of Daniel and his buddies, his companions, was that each of these young men, their name has God in the meaning. Uh, Daniel's name, the name means God is my judge. Hananiah's name, God has favored. Mishael's name, God has no equal. Azariah's name, Jehovah has helped me. What does that tell us? Well, that tells me that he had, they had godly parents. who they, they, they were thinking about God when they were naming their children. And they were trying to instill a knowledge and a fear of God from the very birth. You know, that is so important for parents today. I, I love the fact that we brought the kids up to sing and, and, and to do that. And the fact that the kids are learning at their level, they're learning about the gospel. They're learning about God. They have an awareness of God. It's so important to instill that in children, to raise them up, to understand what their identity is and that their identity is not tied to the world. Because once they get in the world, the world's going to say, hey, no, 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 you're us. You're one of us. But they're not. They need to know who they are in the eyes of the Lord. And Daniel and his companions had that identity instilled in them by their parents. But in Babylon, they were given new names. And the purpose was to minimize their identities as the people of God, to try to get them to forget who they were in Israel and to become Babylonians, basically. And so Daniel, whose name was God is my judge, he was named Belteshazzar. That name means favored by Bel. Bel was one of the chief gods of the Babylonians. Hananiah's name, God has favored. 
His name was changed to Shadrach, Shadrach, which means illumined by Rak. Rak was the sun god that the Babylonians worshipped. Mishael, whose name was God has no equal. Can you imagine having that as a knowledge? Hey, there's no, no one equal. There's no one like God. His name was changed to uh, Meshach, which means belonging to Shaq, not Shaquille, but <laughs> belonging to Shaq, the wine goddess. Azariah, Jehovah has helped. His name was changed to Abednego, which was a servant of Nego. Nego was a Babylonian equivalent of Lucifer. So if you can imagine how that would have affected these young men who were instilled with the knowledge of God. No, 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 you're, 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 you're illumined by rack. You know, you're a servant of Lucifer. How that would have impacted these young, young men. Now, being children of nobility back in Judah, they would have been well-educated and probably educated in the temple to some degree. And it's interesting because the prophet Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah. And the scholars figure that Habakkuk's ministry was probably uh, just developing, basically, in the years just after King Josiah's death. Well, Daniel would have been about 15 years old when Josiah died. And so he probably, more than likely, was educated even by Habakkuk the prophet. And uh, the prophet Habakkuk, and we haven't got to the book of Habakkuk yet, but the prophet Habakkuk foretold of the invasion of Judah by the Babylonians. You can read it in, in the book of Habakkuk. And so Habakkuk probably warned Daniel as he had that time, you know, God had laid that, that truth of Scripture on his heart, the prophecies, and he wanted to impart it to Daniel and his companions. Hey Daniel, there's a time coming. God's going to punish this nation. You guys are going to go to. You're going to go into Babylon. The whole nation's going to go into captivity. But you know, warning them and telling them, hey, God has His hand on your life. Not only that, not only the prophet Habakkuk, but they had the writings of Isaiah and they had the writings of Jeremiah, prophets of the Lord who warned over and over again about what was going to occur. And this must have had an impact and an effect on young Daniel. And that prepared him when he found himself being led away to Babylon as a captive. I think about how important it is for us to teach our young children, to prepare them. You know, we we, we prepare them to send them off to college. And, uh, you know, you might give them a good, solid Christian education. You bring them to church you, you and everything. And then you send them off to college. And in college, man, they're, they're like set free to the wolves, basically. All the atheistic professors and everything. And, and they are going to be brainwashed. And so it's so important to prepare your children ahead of time because it's going to happen. They're going to be, the world's going to try to give your children a new identity. You belong to us, man. Forget that stuff. That's all fairy tales, man. This is where it's at. And, and so it's so important to instill that in our children. Why is it so important for you and I to study the book of, of, of Daniel and other books of prophecy? Because God tells you and I in advance what's going to happen so that we can be sober-minded and alert and realize, hey, I see this happening, and this is what God's Word said. I need to live according to that. And I think this is what happened in Daniel's life. He was warned. They were prepared how to live when they got to Babylon. And so we get to verse 8. Here the Babylonians are trying to brainwash Daniel and his friends. They're trying to give them a new identity, a Babylonian identity, which was idolatry. And it says, verse 8, 
But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Daniel purposed in his heart. I want you to listen to the definitions. There's many definitions of the word purpose in the, in the Bible dictionary, but here's some that I think are so uh, pertinent. Consider. Commit. Determine, rehearse, regard, appoint. Daniel considered. Daniel regarded in his heart. He would not defile himself with the king's delicacies. You know, you and I, we have that same opportunity as believers. Romans 6.11, Paul says, Likewise, you also Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, we need to consider, hey, I'm a new believer in Jesus Christ. I'm dead to sin. I'm not going to live in that old lifestyle because I'm a new person in Christ Jesus. We're to consider, we're to reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus. Daniel determined. Daniel rehearsed in his heart uh, that he would not defile himself with the king's delicacies. I think that has such an important impact. He, he rehearsed in his heart. Hey, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go in that direction. Listen to what Job 31.1 says. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? I'm, I'm, making a re- I'm rehearsing it. You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm making a covenant with my eyes. I'm not going to look at those things. I'm telling myself ahead of time, I'm not going to go in that direction. Why? Because temptations are strong. And if I don't prepare myself, I can get caught off guard in a weak moment. And then finally, I find myself looking at stuff I shouldn't be looking at in weakness. So I need to determine in my heart, you know what? I'm a new creation. I'm not going to go in that direction. This is what Daniel did. He purposed in his heart. Psalm 119, 115, depart from me, you evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. Determine, you know what? I'm going to follow whatever the Bible says. I'm just going to I'm going to do what the Bible says rather than waiting until you get into a situation where now there's a temptation do I compromise do I not if you say ahead of time you know what I'm just going to live my life according to God's word it's so much easier than if you say well I'll just take it as it comes you know and a lot of times we as Christians do that we kind of you know we kind of leave the back door open well you know if it's if things you know Nobody's watching. You know, I can get away with this. No, man, make that determination in your heart. I'm going to serve the Lord. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Here's another example. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You're in giving. You know, I'm, I'm going to purpose to give. So Daniel, raised by godly parents, most likely, given their names, him and his companions, and warned by God's prophets, most likely, prepared himself in advance to remain true and faithful to the Lord while in Babylon. Those of you that have kids going into college or getting ready to go to college in a couple years, wouldn't that be cool if you just had that confidence in your heart? You know what? I know that they're purposing in their heart that they're not going to go the way of the world, that they're not going to fall for those lies and stuff. What What a comfort that would be, right? Well, that's what Daniel did. It says, Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs, that he might not defile himself. Daniel was very diplomatic. He didn't make some big bold, ah, I ain't got to do that, that's idolatry. He just said, hey, you know what, can you, can you let me not do those things? 
And, you know, we get to verse 9, and I think because Daniel purposed in his heart that he was going to live righteously in a land of unrighteousness, verse 9, Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then, he would, then you would endanger my head before the king. So in other words, he's saying, you know what, I, I, I hear what you're saying, Daniel, and I like you, Daniel. I mean, you're a good guy. You seem like a very upright guy. But listen, the king told me this. And the king, you know, he can chop off my head any time. And, and I, if I disobey the king's orders, I'm dead. And so Daniel said to the steward, uh, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. As you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. You know, it says here, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Proverbs sixteen seven says this, When a man's ways please the Lord... He even makes his enemies to be at peace with him. You know, there's another thing that we see in the quality or in the character of Daniel here. Daniel was a leader. He was even a leader among these four men, or these four young men, I should say. Would the others have done the same thing Daniel had done if Daniel had not taken that leadership role? We never know. We won't know because Daniel stepped up and said, Hey, you know, he purposed in his heart. Because it's interesting, you read verse 8 and it says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief uh, of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. I mean, he had his own conviction. You know, I'm not going to, I don't want to do this. I don't want to defile myself. And I'm not going to. He made that determination himself. But then we get to verse 10, and it says, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, which we read earlier, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces? So that's not just Daniel. That's Daniel and his buddies are standing before the king there, or before the the chief of the eunuchs. Well, For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. And then listen to what Daniel says here in verse 12. Please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Now, I can imagine Daniel didn't just go up there by himself and say, hey, you know, try this out. And if it doesn't work, you can do whatever you want with us. (laughs) You know, they'd be like, what do you mean us? You know, you're the one that's saying that, Daniel. But Daniel, as a leader, he had his own conviction. But you know what? He encouraged these other guys. Hey, hey, guys, you know what? We're in this foreign land. But listen, man, God has brought us here. There's a purpose, and we still fear God. Let's live for him. And Daniel was a leader, and so Daniel encouraged these other guys. And obviously, they said, hey, Daniel, you're right. We're with you, Daniel. Man, what a, what a cool quality. Now, you know what? I wish I was like that when I was a teen. I was a follower. 
I mean, I, I, I was like, I wanted to be cool, you know. So peer pressure was a big thing for me. You know, as long as I fit in with a cool crowd, I was cool, you know. But you know what? That happened. Uh, I went in the direction of drugs. I went in the direction of alcohol. I went in the direction of things I shouldn't have gone in because I wanted to fit in. I wasn't a leader. I wish I had been a leader. Looking back and I look at our kids and go, man, I wish, you know. And some kids are leaders. And praise God for leaders. Um, Daniel was a leader. At some point, Daniel became the spokesman for the four of them, which means he had to have discussed it with them. And he had to have been first willing to stand for his own for righteousness himself, but his commitment encouraged others to take the same stand for righteousness. I wonder if you and I do that in the workplace, in school, in our communities. If we're the ones that are saying, you know what, I'm going to stand for righteousness, because so often... You know, we get intimidated into science. And, and for, you know, when, you, when there's one person that says, you know what, I'm going to stand for righteousness. And then the other believers around him who've been maybe kind of like, oh, I don't, they go, you know what, I'm standing with you, brother. Or I'm standing with you, sister. I wonder if we are the ones that would be willing to take that step of boldness and say, you know what, I'm going to stand for righteousness. Daniel did. And because of his stand, he encouraged others to follow his Leading, So, of course, and then God blessed them. And so the chief of the eunuchs, it says, he consented with them in this manner and tested them ten days. Verse 15, And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men. So, in other words, they eaten vegetables and water, but they didn't, they didn't look any gaunt. They didn't look gaunt. They didn't look undernourished or malnourished. They looked better than the other young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus, the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So Daniel and his, and his companions, they pleased the Lord and the, and the Lord gave them favor with their enemies. Verse 17, As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and all in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Psalm one nineteen ninety eight says, "You through your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. You want to have knowledge." You want to have wisdom? It's found in the Word of God. It says you live your life according to God's Word. You will be wiser than your enemies. You will, be, you will understand more than the ancients if you not only read God's Word, but if you keep God's Word. Verse uh, Proverbs 2.6, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. That's where it comes from, from God's Word. Verse 18, now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. So here's these guys who didn't compromise. They didn't compromise, and yet God put them in a position of prominence, a position of influence, and they didn't have to compromise themselves. They just stuck by what God's word. They stuck by their convictions. And God blessed them and God provided a way. What a, what a lesson that is for you and I. Verse 20. 
And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Now the Chaldeans were known in the ancient world for their astro- astrology, astronomy. I mean, they, they, they were into sciences. They were very well educated. They were really into it. And Nebuchadnezzar was a Chaldean himself. So he was a, not a dummy. He was a very intelligent person himself. And he himself tested them. And he's like, well, you guys are smarter than those guys and these dummies back here, you know. And so... Um, Daniel, it's interesting here, Daniel and his companions are mentioned in the New Testament in the Hall of Faith, which is Hebrews chapter 11. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33, it talks about men who through faith stopped the mouths of lions. We're going to get to a very interesting story here about Daniel and the lion's den. And I'm sure if you've been to Sunday school, if you watch Veggie Tales or whatever, you know what I'm talking about. Daniel was in the lion's den. We're going to be reading about that. Through faith, he stopped the mouths of lions. Through faith, they quenched the violence of fire. There's another very fascinating story. People read that and go, that can't, can't be true. Well, it is. It's God's word, and it is true. We'll be getting to that. I encourage you to come back for this, our study in Daniel. It's going to be very good. Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel was younger than Jeremiah. He was a prophet. He would have been younger than Daniel. By the time Ezekiel was writing his, his, his book, Daniel already had, a, had acquired quite a bit of fame in Babylon because he was in a very prominent place, and he was a guy who stuck by his convictions. And he was, he was very well known. Daniel, or so, excuse me, Ezekiel uh, uses Daniel as an example of righteousness twice in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 14.14, 14, uh, Ezekiel says, Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, he's in pretty good company there, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Um, Daniel, that's twice mentioned about his righteousness. Daniel is also, uh, in Ezekiel, used as an example of wisdom. In Ezekiel 28.3, Ezekiel is prophesying to the king of Tyre. And he says, Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that it can be hidden from you. So Daniel, excuse me, Ezekiel already, Daniel, had a, had a reputation, and uh, it was a reputation of righteousness, and it was a reputation of no compromise. And this young man, he didn't have the opportunity to have a family. He didn't have the opportunity to serve in the temple. He was in a foreign land. He was in an idolatrous place, but he stuck by his, by his, by his principles, and uh, he would remain faithful to the Lord, and... Uh, and God blessed him. And Daniel lived a very long life. And he was honored by kings, by foreign kings. Daniel, uh, verse 21, it says, Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus was the king of the Medes and the Persians uh, who overtook the Babylonians. And uh, they started the Medo-Persian Empire, basically. Uh, Daniel lived through the entire Babylonian uh, empire basically through the rise and the fall of the Babylonian Empire, and he lived into the rise of the Medo Persian Empire. And during that entire time in the Bible, there's never any sign of compromise or sin that Daniel needed to confess in his life. Now, he was human, so he probably did sin, but there's no records of any major things that he did, any major compromises, any major rebellion, or anything like that. And the thing is, it all started in Daniel's youth. 
when Daniel was just a boy uh, or young man in verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. It started when Daniel was young and he set a course for godliness in his life. And God blessed him. And for those of you that are young here, man, I encourage you, set a course for righteousness, for godliness now. Because it gets harder. The older you get, it gets harder. Things happen. And uh, so set a course. Now, for those of us that are not quite young, you know, or a little bit beyond that, um, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I read this and I go, you know, I'm not a Daniel I'm not a Joseph either. Joseph was another example of a young man that that just, you know, he was not going to compromise, and God blessed him. But I look at my life, man, I compromised. Uh, You know, and probably some of you here, you know, you have regrets. Maybe a lot of regrets. Maybe you go, you know, it's too late. I've I've already sown my wild oats. I've already done those things. I want to encourage you this morning. First Peter 4, 3, Peter writes this, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. We spent enough time doing that stuff of the world. You know what? God gives you and I chances. This morning, God's giving you and I another chance. If, your spirit, if this Holy Spirit's speaking to you, He's giving you another chance. You know, throughout Jeremiah's ministry, and he had a very long ministry too, Jeremiah, the Lord through Jeremiah, continually told the children of Israel, the children of the nation of Judah, repent and return, and I will bless you. Jeremiah 3.14, he says, Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. God over and over and over again says, Return, and I'll bless you. You know that God says that today to you and I? If you will turn from your sins, I'll erase that past, and you'll be a new person, and, and I'll bless you, and I'll lead you, and I'll guide you. It's never too late to turn back to the Lord. You might have regrets. I have regrets, but it's not too late. God restores what the enemy has stolen if you will surrender your life to him. Even the invasions, the three invasions of Babylon by, uh, of Judah by the Babylonians shows God's patience because each time they had one, well, the last one they didn't, but the, the two times before, they had an opportunity to repent. The last one was like, that's it. You're not repenting, so you're going to go into captivity. But I think God just did it bit by bit because he said, you know, I'm, I'm just going to give you a little bit of heat. I want you to repent. And they were too stubborn to repent. And so God said, okay, a little bit more. I want you to repent. I, I think of how many times God's done that in my life, you know. He disciplines those whom he loves, and he wants us to turn back to him. And so this morning, you know, if you're young, man, set a course for godliness now. It'll make your life much easier. You'll live without regrets, I guarantee it. If you've already done what probably a lot of us have done, we, we have regrets and we have, it's like we're, you know, we're later on in our years and stuff. It's not too late. It's ne- as long as you're breathing, it's not too late to return back to the Lord because God gives second chances over and over and over again.